This is Guns and Butter. The only way we can get these bad guys is to be worse than them and be more devious. And that's how crime and law enforcement become uh, indistinguishable. And, and, and the, the tactics that are used in crime and law enforcement are exactly the same, except that one group wears the mantle of, of uh, legitimacy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Douglas Valentine. Today's show, How the CIA Corrupts the System. Douglas Valentine is the author of several works of historical nonfiction, including The Phoenix Program, America's Use of Terror in Vietnam, about the CIA in Vietnam, and The Strength of the Wolf and the Strength of the Pack, which discuss the history of federal drug law enforcement. He also edited a poetry anthology with our eyes wide open, Poems of the New American Century. Today we discuss his latest book, The CIA as Organized Crime, How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World. Douglas Valentine, welcome again. Thank you for having me on your show. In your new book, The CIA as Organized Crime, How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World, you've written that the collusion between crime and law enforcement is the glue that holds the system together. You say that this is the case for small towns all the way up to the federal government. How does this system of collusion between crime and law enforcement operate? And why is this the case? You asked the question, is having people who are in actuality war criminals in positions of legislative and executive authority in America an expression of a free society? What are some examples of war criminals in positions of authority in America? For example, Major General Bruce Lawler. You wrote a chapter on him. Who is he? Well, uh, when I was doing my researching my book, The Phoenix Program, I met a bunch of CIA officers and they told me what they did. And um, uh, Bruce Lawler was one of them. And he was a guy that, he was going to college in Washington, D.C. and he got recruited into the CIA. And um, this was um, uh, during the Vietnam War. And he was sent for training. He learned how to be uh, both an agent handler which is a specific uh, job description in the CIA. There's agent handlers, but he also learned how to be a paramilitary officer, which are people that shoot guns and blow things up and organize paramilitary units uh, in foreign countries. And then around 1970, he was sent over, 71, he was sent over to Vietnam to to work for um, more senior CIA officers doing these things. One of his jobs as a liaison officer was working with what was called the special branch of the South Vietnamese police. Um, They are sort of comparable to our FBI, the special branch of the police. They they were involved in um, uh, trying to uh, penetrate the insurgency at the highest levels. The Viet Cong insurgency had a political apparatus you could think of them as the Democrats and the Americans and their 
um, uh, allies as the Republicans and, and the the CIA and its allies and the special police and the the uh, South Vietnamese army and its politicians were like Republicans and they could not tolerate anybody who was a communist. Um, uh, they were after trying to find all the Democrats, all the communists in, in um, South Vietnam and they would penetrate that organization through informants and also um, secret agents who would become part of it. They weren't really all that interested necessarily in arresting these people, but they were interested in being able to manipulate them, to be able to say, well, we know where your family lives. If you're not good, we'll go bump off your family. So, uh, because in, in Vietnam, for example, all of the communists knew who the, who the special policemen were and where their families were. So you couldn't go around bumping off each other's families or you'd have like, a, you know, like with the mafia, there was, um, you know, you don't kill another man's wife and kids, you know, you just keep it with yourself. So that was sort of like a rule. Anyway, Lawler found himself uh, as a very young man, maybe 24, 25 years old, in a very uh, uh, important position. He was a liaison to a special police officer. And that special police officer ran an interrogation center where uh, people who were suspected of having ties to the to the communists were brought for interrogation. And um, uh, his job was to be there and to watch what would happen and report on it back to his his bosses. And um, uh, when I was talking with Lawler, he was very upset about the things he saw and, and uh, about um, how his bosses behaved. We were now, it's now into 1972-73, there's been a ceasefire signed and um, uh, supposedly the war has stopped and yet, yet these kind of very, um, well, devious and deadly kind of assassinations and interrogations and torture were still going on and they weren't supposed to be going on anymore. And Lawler was very upset. One day he walked into this interrogation center and there was a woman laid out on a, on a, a table and she'd been murdered and raped. And he saw that, you know, the, the, the special policeman had um, uh, murdered this woman and, and he was just stunned. He didn't know what to do. I mean, it's a crime. Obviously, it's a crime. And um, uh, he reported it, and he was told, well, you know, forget about it. The, we can't control what the, the South Vietnamese do. Don't make an issue of it. Other things like that were happening uh, to him, and he was witnessing his boss. And, he, you know, he explained all this to me. Um, uh, his boss was a very senior CIA officer, and he was in charge of uh, da Nang City, which is up in I Corp. And Bruce, through his, uh, Lawler, through his uh, agent net, knew that this guy's girlfriend was a Viet Cong agent. And he went to his senior CIA boss and he said, Look at, I know your girlfriend's, um, uh, you know, working for the enemy. And he told me, but the, this, they, they knew the war was winding down and they just wanted to live a good life. The, this, you know, CIA, old time CIA guy it was his last tour. He was going to retire. Um, it wasn't uncommon in, in, in Vietnam 
for us seniors, uh, the Vietnamese special police, to actually bring a young 14, 15-year-old girl to a CIA officer every night. Different one. Um, it's different culture. And um, these kinds of things and inducements were available. And, and when you're a CIA officer and you're, um, uh, everything you do is secret, you know, you don't have to put that into a report. And because you're, because you're protected and, and, and nobody can, can ever bring you before court in the United States, you can do anything illegal you want and you can get away with it. And, and all it takes is an old boy network of each of these guys knowing that this is how it works and that, you know, all they have to do is cover for each other and they can get away with it. And they're getting away with it all over the world every day in a million ways. And that's how that old boy system works. But Bruce Lawler was only 24 years old. 25 years old, and he hadn't yet got assimilated into this old boy culture, and he actually went to the security officer in Saigon and uh, reported about the rape and the murder of this woman and about his senior boss uh, being involved in uh, having a girlfriend who was you know, part of the enemy infrastructure. And within a week, Bruce Lawler was sent home, okay? You know, so so uh, the security forces within the CIA, within the FBI, they don't exist to um, uh, enforce rules or laws. They exist to enforce the old boy network and to allow these guys to get away with this. I mean, and if you, the worst thing that you can do, you know, ask somebody like Snowden or John Kiriakou. Kiriakou ended up spending a couple of years in prison. Because he, he, all he did was mention another CIA officer's name. The, the one thing you can't do in the CIA is, you know, uh, rat out all the corruption that's going on. It's just like being in the NYPD. You can, you can rip off of people left and right all day long. The one thing you can't do is, is break the code of silence. And that's the same thing that's going on in the CIA. And that's why I said at the beginning of this, this conversation that if you're successful because you lie, steal, and cheat, and murder, well, those become the things that you're going to use in the bureaucracy. And that's exactly what happens. But you can't know about it because these are secret organizations. And they're, you know, supposedly they're secret because there's, they're doing all this good work overthrowing Russia or something, you know. Um, but it's really, it's really just to, to uh, preserve all the prerogatives and the freedoms that they have in the security services themselves or in the police force themselves. And they rationalize it by saying, well, we have to live these lives because we're on the front lines and we get very small paychecks and we have to supplement our incomes somehow. You know, a, a cop says, well, I can't sell my, send my kids to college on the paycheck I get. So if I want to send my kids to college, well, then I got to let um, the Jamaicans beat up the Colombians and take over the, the drug trade in my neighborhood, you know, and then because the drug trade is going to go on anyway. So I got to let somebody do it. So, you know, somebody's going to give me some money that I can send my kids to college. So all these things go into it. Anyway, um, at the same time, in order to become part of this old boy network, whether it's in the NYPD or the FBI or the CIA, as happened to Lawler, you have to give up a part of yourself. And, and Lawler went through all this training 
And he uh, really believed in fighting communism. And even though he got sent back home after reporting on all the corruption he saw, and even though they actually kicked him out of the CIA, there was a part of him that always longed to get back in. And uh, a couple of years later, he actually went back down to Washington, D.C., Lawler's from uh, uh, Vermont. And he went to see William Colby, who was also brought up in Vermont. And Colby tried to get him back into the CIA, and it, it didn't really work. So, so he went back into the um, – he, he'd been a reserve officer in the military. But he, he wanted to be part of this. So Colby helped him getting back into the military, and, and all of a sudden – through the 1990s, he started rising very quickly through the military. And by, by 1999, he was actually in general heading uh, a, a special joint coordination force within NATO or something. I can't remember exactly, but he, was, he had given up his law practice and become a full-time military officer. He was a general. And when the um, Department of Homeland Security was created in, in 2001, Bruce Lawler became its chief of staff. And all of a sudden you have a guy who's still trying to prove, whose, whose personal motivation is to prove that he really is one of the old boys, that he, he's sorry that he ratted out all his bosses back there in Vietnam Please give me a chance and I'll show you guys that I'm really one of you. Now, he gets appointed chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security when it's created. And all sorts of people were complaining about because they didn't understand what he was doing. And they, they couldn't understand why he was doing certain things. And I wrote him a letter. It was actually an open letter, which was published in Counterpunch about a week after he got appointed to this position, and I said, hey, Bruce, are you still working for the CIA? I mean, are you a CIA plant in the Department of Homeland Security? Are you actually working for them? And are you, you know, helping to organize this new organization in a way that makes it possible for the CIA to infiltrate them and to place people that it wants in positions of power there? And of course, you know, that was, again, I'm not a I didn't come up through the Columbia School of Journalism, you know, I mean, I, I was, you know, asked it, you know, and of course he never responded, but you don't know, you know, a guy like him could always be, even if he's not actually a CIA officer, so ideologically in sync with them and, and, and has the contacts, I mean, that, that he could actually be a CIA asset at the highest level of the Department of Homeland Security. And if you think it doesn't happen, think again, because it does happen. And there was an awful lot of people from the Phoenix program and from the CIA who moved out of the CIA, either into positions of um, uh, to hold public office or into law enforcement or the DEA or the FBI or some other organization who maintain their CIA contacts come up through another channel and find themselves in the Department of Homeland Security. And, 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 and certainly the ideology is there and infects the whole thing of the only way we can get these bad guys is to be worse than them and to be more devious. And that's how 
crime and law enforcement become uh, indistinguishable. And, and, and the, the tactics that are used in crime and law enforcement are exactly the same, except that one group wears the mantle of, of uh, legitimacy. You know, and the other, and the other, you know, they're the the immigrants or the the outcasts who are just trying to get into the establishment, and they don't have lawyers writing tax laws, you know, to get them off of uh, like a like a guy like Trump, you know, so he doesn't have to pay a million dollars, a billion dollars in taxes that he owes, which of course is a much bigger crime than anything that these these um, you know, that the minions are doing, you know, that the nobodies are. Are doing that are getting arrested and put in jail. You know, I mean, the the massive crime um, is conducted systematically. Like, like I quote that fellow at the beginning of my book, saying, you know, uh, uh, the violence of guns is for the amateur. You know, the violence of of aircraft carrier fleets, of nuclear weapons, of um, uh, the de- Department of Justice that's essentially racist. You know, that kind of violence, that kind of terror, well, that's that's the problems of our rulers. And it's all legal because they make it legal for them to do it. And and yet it's no it's no less criminal to be not paying a billion dollars in, in taxes. Just as you're a billionaire, that's that's what you're allowed to do. Anyway, so I could go on and on with there's all sorts of of, of in, in this book, the CIA organized crime present a couple of cases of people who work for the CIA or special forces and then carry this, this whole philosophy with them into their public life. I'm speaking with researcher and author Douglas Valentine. Today's show, How the CIA Corrupts the System. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You also comment in your book that uh, you observe that the personality traits of criminals and those who go into law enforcement or the CIA or whatever, that they have very similar personality traits. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I interviewed a, um, a man named Nelson Brickham, who was the guy who created the Phoenix program. I think I might have told you about him in our previous interview. And Brickham was... <laughs> I mean, so some of these people are funny, you know. I mean, and they they were very forthcoming with me because they thought, you know, because William Colby sent me, you know, that it was okay to tell me everything. And and Brickham said it was his feeling, based on twenty years of of experience, that the average CIA officer was just a frustrated mercenary, a, a guy who, if he wasn't educated, hadn't gone to Harvard or Yale or Columbia. And hadn't joined the CIA would have been a mercenary. Uh, that it's the, this is CIA officers telling me this, and he wasn't the only one. When you meet these guys, whether they're in the DEA, you know, I mean, a DEA guy who goes undercover into the uh, Medellin cartel, you know, you can't fake it. <laughs> You can't join a drug trafficking organization and fake it. You know, I mean, you've got to have in you the larceny. You've got to have the psychopathology. You've got to be a bit of a sociopath. And uh, it's the same thing with the CIA. I mean, I have some of those traits myself. I confess. And that's one of the reasons these guys liked me. You know, I mean, 
I could walk into a room with them, you know, in a bar and have a couple of drinks and we could look at each other and say, let's cause some trouble, you know, let's see what we can get away with. If I wasn't that way, if I had been a good guy, I never would have, they never would have trusted me and talked to me. You got to be somewhat felonious in order for them to even begin to trust you. Um, you can't ride with a cop in a patrol car if he thinks you're going to rat him out. You know, I mean, you're out the door. So anyway, Brickham said this to me, and, and it was my experience, having known all these guys, uh, federal narcotic agents, cops, uh, CIA officers, that it's absolutely true. And, and there is no really difference uh, between a, a CIA officer who, who can go and uh, wipe out a family um, or send somebody to go wipe out a family because it's what, what the CIA calls psychological warfare. And it's going to suppress the bad guys. They know that we're going to go get your family and we're going to wipe them out. And they think it's funny. You know, we can do this and we can, we can uh, get away with it. And that's the mentality that these people exhibit. And, and, they, and they can't rat it out and they, and, and they ideologically, they become so indoctrinated that it, they think that when they commit crimes, it's okay. They think they're above the law. What What is the relationship between um, the Drug Enforcement Administration, that is the DEA, and the CIA? Is it as simple, at, at least at one point, as the DEA uh, fighting drug trafficking and the CIA promoting it? <laughs> it's a long history that evolves to some extent. Okay. Um, well, Nowadays, the DEA is, is, is basically an adjunct overseas of the CIA. And of course, Afghanistan is the showcase example. Um, the Taliban, when it took power in 1999 or 2000, first thing it did was it outlawed um, opium production. And, and the, the amount of opium coming out of Afghanistan uh, diminished, decreased. After the CIA took over in uh, 2002, opium production in Afghanistan skyrocketed. And it has become, since, since the CIA took over in uh, Afghanistan and the military started occupying that country, for the last 15 years, Afghanistan has provided like 90% of the heroin to the United States. Uh, it, you can... You know, you can believe the the published reports that the DEA puts out and it says, well, it's the Taliban did it. You know, I mean, but it's like, you know, your dog pees on your on your rug and then you come in and he says, well, the Russians did it. You know, I mean, you can believe your eyes or you can believe what they're, you know, what they're reporting to you. But it's in a country like Afghanistan, the DEA serves a function of making sure that the warlords on the CIA's payroll uh, are able to deal narcotics. If somebody in the Taliban tries to deal narcotics, then the, then the DEA descends on them. But it's political. It's totally political. And it, it's, it's, ordered, it, uh, it's considered national security. It's more important for the United States to have um, political control of Afghanistan. And the only way they can have political control is if they deal with gangsters who deal narcotics 
and are willing to sell out their own country in order to make a couple of million dollars. And then, you know, later on, you know, get construction deals. You know, they're, they're diversified. The warlords that are on the CIA's payroll, you know, I mean, they, they speculate in the market. They uh, involved in vast, you know, uh, always funneling their illegal uh, narcotic profits into legitimate enterprises, you know, and they make build up a political party and uh, uh, control the country. But that's how it works. And it worked that way in, 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 I should say, South Vietnam used to be the absolute example of this. Uh, and I, I discovered this while uh, investigating the Phoenix program. Um, for example, I was talking once with this guy named uh, Robert Slater, and he ran the interrogation program in South Vietnam with the special police that I mentioned earlier. Um, the CIA paid to have an interrogation center built in each of the 44 provinces in South Vietnam. And it was this guy Slater's job, and he had a team of Americans he worked with to train uh, the South Vietnamese uh, special policemen who staffed these inter interrogation centers. And, he would inspect them and he would ride around with a team of special branch officers and they would go to this province or that province and they would you know, inspect these interrogation centers and make sure everybody was writing reports properly, manning the outposts properly, all the different things. It was a bureaucracy. I remember Slater telling me that this, the team that he traveled around the country with, they all smoked opium on the Air America planes when they're flying around. Uh, you know, the Vietnamese did not think about opium the way we think about opium. You know, these are like they're FBI agents and they're smoking opium on their way to, to inspect a, you know, an interrogation center. It's a bizarre situation there in South Vietnam. Um, it was part of the culture to smoke opium. Uh, they didn't have the, uh, uh, a lot of pharmacies. <laughs> And how a lot of doctors, rural people, would smoke opium, uh, you know, to reduce pain uh, for certain, you know, uh, as medicine. The whole society was permeated. It. And in order to keep the generals and the politicians and the policemen that were on their payroll, the CIA, had to allow these people to dabble in narcotics and, and to actually import tons of opium from Laos, where it was grown, and where the CIA actually had an army that it, it financed through the growing of opium, um, uh, and then it was sold to people in South Vietnam. So you know they controlled the CIA, controlled both ends of the operation. It grew it and made money, supported its its army in Laos by growing it, and then selling it to the, the South Vietnamese. Uh, who then sold it to American soldiers. Uh, addiction in, in uh, South Vietnam became a huge problem for the army. But uh, if they, and, and again, here's the relationship between crime and law enforcement. If the CIA didn't control the um, opium trade, then the Viet Cong would have controlled it. And then they would have made the money from it. And then they would have been able to buy politicians. So the CIA was forced, you know, or at least they say they were forced through the reality of the situation 
to control the opium trade. And, and that's what they did. They monopolized it. And that's what they do all over the world. They monopolized the opium trade internationally for the same exact reasons they did it in South Vietnam and the same reason they do it in Afghanistan. Because if they don't control it, then the bad guys, the people that they think of their enemies will control it. They'll make the money and they'll control the underworld and be able to buy their politicians and put their people in place to control the political and social movements. And that's the reality. And, and the, the DEA, like I said, is, is an adjunct overseas of this policy. And, and any report you read is totally fabricated that says anything otherwise. I'm speaking with researcher and author Douglas Valentine. Today's show, How the CIA Corrupts the System. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Speaking of the drug trade in South Vietnam, you wrote an article called The Clash of Icons. What was that about? Well, you know, when you do a book like I did on the CIA, you, you find out all sorts of things that don't actually make it into the book. And as I told you the last time we spoke, uh, I got entree into the CIA through William Colby, who was a director of Central Intelligence. And um, just briefly, uh, he was a person that ran the Phoenix program in, in South Vietnam for a couple of years, went back to the United States and became director of Central Intelligence. He liked me. I, I went to approach him around 1984, told him I wanted to write a book about Phoenix. For some reason, he liked me, and he started introducing me to CIA people that he thought would be very helpful to me. And he introduced me to a guy named Frank Scotton. And um, uh, Frank Scotton is this tremendously charismatic character. He's from Boston. His father was killed in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge or something like that. And uh, uh, he's a very patriotic guy. He went to American University um, where he graduated around 1960, 1961. He went to um, uh, the East-West Center in Hawaii around 1961 where he learned how to run agent nets. I was told he, he joined the United States Information Service, the USIS which is the overseas branch of the United States Information Agency. And in late 1961, early 1962, Frank Scotton ended up in Vietnam. And Colby sent me to Scotton because Scotton was um, a pioneer in developing a couple of the programs that were incorporated into the Phoenix program five years later. One of those programs was called Armed Propaganda Teams. When, when Scott got to Vietnam in 1962, we weren't at war with the country yet. And um, he was put way up in the highlands, um, working with mountain yards, uh, mountain people who were kind of looked down upon by the Vietnamese. And there was a bunch of Brits there. Um, the Brits were, were kind of, they were the experts on how to organize uh, indigenous people because they had they had done that in Malaysia, and he fell under the influence of these these um, Brits, and uh, he started getting involved in these very very uh, clandestine kind of um, 
psychological warfare operations where they adopted communist techniques of uh, uh, trying to promote the, the, the government line in villages, uh, understanding that uh, the communists had infiltrated this area and um, uh, Scotton was trying to set up programs that would convince the people to come over to the government side. Going into these remote villages, I remember he told me once they, they would drop leaflets or um, you know tell people the, that you know we're going to bring you democracy and, and, and they were on the outskirts of a village and he shot a flare gun into the, into the sky at night and they yelled, walk to the light. You know, like the, the Bible begins, you know, let there be light. You know, they were trying to find ways to convince very rural people to come over to the side of the government. And Scott put these armed propaganda, armed propaganda teams together. And these armed propaganda teams had a, a component that was called a counter-terror team. And they would go into a village where the uh, communists had influence and had put a communist agent in the village um, in order to control the behaviors of the people in that village. And Scotton's counter-terror team would, would pull him into the middle of the village and um, say, we know this guy works for the communists, and they would chop his head off and put it on a stake. And they would say, if you do this sort of stuff, if you you know collaborate with the communists, this is going to happen to you. And they say that they were they were doing this because the communists were doing it, and they had to do it. If they were going to compete with the communists, they had to be as brutal as them. This counter-terror facet of um, Scotland's armed propaganda teams became one of the two foundation stones of the Phoenix program. This counter-terror, you know, being able to go into enemy villages with small units and commit atrocities. That was one of the two foundation stones, the other being the interrogation centers that I was just telling you about. Anyway, so Scott was widely known within the CIA and uh, the intelligence community in South Vietnam for having devised these programs. In 1965, a young Marine Corps uh, captain named Dan Ellsberg was sent to Vietnam. And Ellsberg was sent to, to uh, work with um, a guy named uh, General Lansdale, who was in charge of what was called the Revolutionary Development Program in Vietnam at that time. The Revolutionary Development Program had incorporated Scotton's armed propaganda teams as its, as its centerpiece and its counter-terror function, and was expanding it, just like with the interrogation centers. It started out in a little village here, in a, pro a district there, and they were making it national in 1965. And the Pentagon sent Daniel Ellsberg out to work with Lansdale and Scotton and to observe and report on how this revolutionary development program was playing out. And Dan Ellsberg lived with Frank Scott for a year, and they were best friends. Anyway, Colby sent me to interview Scott, you know, and I was talking with Scott about all these programs that he put together and which I wrote about extensively. 
And out of the blue, he said, oh, and by the way, I lived with Dan Ellsberg for a year. I said, you mean the Dan Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers? He said, oh, yeah, you know, Dan was one of us. All these things that we did, all these kind of like really clandestine operations where you go out and you, you put on black pajamas like the Viet Cong and you go into a village and you hunt down the uh, enemy contracts. Well, Dan went along with us. He did all that stuff with us. And, um, and not only that, uh, he said Dan was quite the ladies' man. And he told me a story, uh, which I should say was corroborated by a couple of other people. I mean, Scott wasn't the only one I was talking to. I talking with another guy, Lou Conin. Um, I don't want to be redundant, but these stories were all corroborated by a lot of people. Dan was uh, quite what they called that day, the swordsman. And, and like I told you earlier, uh, just like opium is um, considered different in South Vietnam, it was a different culture. Well, you know, uh, relations between men and women were also more liberal. Uh, just like I said, it was um, the South Vietnamese would bring young women to um, high-ranking CIA officers. There was a, uh, it just isn't like it is here. There were not a lot, the rules were a lot looser. And anyway, Dan was having a field day. And one of the women that Dan Ellsberg got involved with was a young woman named Germaine. And Germaine was um, one quarter French and three quarters Vietnamese. She, she was connected with um, a, a whole group of French Corsicans, some of whom had been trafficking in opium in South Vietnam and Laos for many years. And Dan started a relationship with this young woman, Germaine, even though he knew that she was the girlfriend of a Corsican drug trafficker named Miguel Seguin. And this is in, the, I think, the summer of 1965. Scotton was telling me the story, and he said, well, it really, it almost blew up the entire underworld, this relationship. Uh, uh, and this guy, Michel Seguin, let it be known that he was going to kill Dan. And he said, I, it, it, the stories about how it actually unfolded are slightly different, but it, they're all basically the same thing. Michel Seguin sent an assassin to kill Dan Ellsberg because he was romancing his girlfriend. And Scott and then Lou Conin, um, Conin, who had been in the CIA for 20 years at that point, 15, 20 years, actually had to go to the Corsican underworld and um, um, tell him to back off and not kill Dan or else there would be a gang war in Saigon between the CIA and the Corsicans. Okay, so it's a fabulously interesting story. And, and uh, I asked Dan Ellsberg about it and he said, well, he had a slightly different version of it. He said that this guy Seguin actually came to the villa where he lived with Scott and put a gun to his head. He said, stay away from my girlfriend, I'll kill you. Um, and then I asked Dan Ellsberg, well, were the Corsicans dealing drugs? Was the CIA involved in that aspect of the underworld? And he flatly denied it. He said that his boss, Ed Lansdale, General Ed Lansdale, who he really admired, and he considered a, um, 
a uh, mentor. Um, Lansdale had been in um, uh, the Philippines in the early 1950s, and he had put down the communist uh, insurrection there. And then in 54, he was sent to um, South Vietnam to do the same thing. And he, and he, he's Lansdale, the guy that put ZM in power. Uh, Lansdale was there to, until 1958, and Conine, Lou Conine was with Lansdale that whole time. Uh, Conine came back to South Vietnam around 61 or 62. Conine was the guy who um, was the liaison between the, the, the CIA and the generals that assassinated ZM in 1963. Conine was still there in 65 uh, when uh, Lansdale came back. So you had Lansdale, Conine, Scott and, and um, Ellsberg all working together. There's a very famous photograph of Conine and, and Ellsberg in a boat together. But when it comes to the CIA and drugs, Dan says, no, there was no uh, relationship. Whereas Conine told Al McCoy, who wrote a very uh, uh, famous book called The Politics of Heroin in, in Southeast Asia, that in 1965, the CIA actually made a deal with the Corsicans that not to interfere in their drug running as long as the Corsicans served as informants for the CIA. So I wrote this article that gets very elaborate, and it's called The Clash of the Icons. Do you believe, on the one hand, Dan Ellsberg, who worked intimately with all these CIA guys for many years, and saying that, there, no, the CIA wasn't involved in drugs, or do you believe Al McCoy, who spent many years researching the subject and <laughs> shows beyond any doubt that the CIA was controlling the whole business. Uh, you know, uh, it documented the whole thing. You know, I mean, who are you going to believe? Uh, and the other thing that Scott told me, which was kind of controversial, was that he had actually put Ellsberg up to release in the Pentagon Papers. And I asked Dan about that as well, and um, he said, uh, he said, no, it absolutely wasn't true that um, uh, Scott and when I saw him was, sort of laughed, and he said, we, we are the ones that put um, uh, Ellsberg up to releasing the Pentagon Papers, and we, meaning Colby and him, um, uh, I didn't ask anything more about it at the time, but I did ask Dan about it, he denied it again. And uh, apparently he already had uh, the Pentagon Papers in his possession when, uh, in late 1970 when Scott showed up at his house and saw the Pentagon Papers there. And um, it may have, you know, there may have been some conversation about it at that point, but um, uh, in his in an autobiography that he wrote recently, Scott denies having put um, Ellsberg up to do it. Although... He did tell me that they did. So anyway, you come across these kind of things, um, and and they they're the kind of insights into what the CIA does in terms of um, uh, corrupting foreign officials. Like for example, Neil Sheehan was part of this group, the the New York Times reporter. He was there. He knew Scott. He knew Ellsberg uh, back in those days. Uh, Halberstam was there. They knew these guys intimately. They partied together. Um, they knew everything that was going on at this very intimate uh, level, and yet they didn't report on it. 
you know, they didn't talk about this kind of aspect of, of how uh, CIA officers in their private lives, the kinds of things that they were involved in, the, 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 the way that they would uh, integrate into the culture, the way they would uh, work and maneuver through the underworld, uh, uh, how they would spy on the um, uh, special policemen or the, the hit teams that they were working on, how you know, they would spy on them and talk back to the CIA about these things because you're not allowed to report anything about the CIA. So this whole, there's this whole secret history of the Vietnam War that exists at this very intimate level that nobody ever knows about or has ever heard about. And the story that I wrote about um, Ellsberg, which I confirmed it all, you know, I did talk to him and, and uh, tell him everything, you know, for his opinions. Um, um, it's just a part of our history. It's a part of world history that nobody ever gets to know. And the only way you ever get to know about it is if these guys accept you into their old boy network. And the only way that they're going to do that is if you're as felonious as they are. And if they really think that you're, you're like them, you know, and, and I guess that was one of the characteristics I had, you know, I mean, I, you know, didn't mind making some trouble if, if that's what it took, you know. So, so anyway, that's, that's that story. Uh, and it involves um, the CIA's involvement in, in narcotic trafficking. That's what's at the center of it. I'm speaking with researcher and author Douglas Valentine. Today's show, How the CIA Corrupts the System. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what about Al McCoy, the author uh, that you referred to in uh, your story, The Clash of Icons, who wrote about the trafficking in heroin in Southeast Asia? Did anything happen to him on account of having done that research and written that book? Oh, sure. You know, I mean, everybody knows about Gary Webb, the, the guy who did the um, expose on the CIA's involvement with the Contras. And Gary Webb was... Uh, denounced by the American media for having exaggerated and made a few little small mistakes and lost his job and ended up allegedly commit suicide out of despair. Well, McCoy suffered too. The CIA tried to prevent his book from being published. One of the guys who was very senior in the CIA at the time named Cord Meyer, who had run the CIA's Operation Mockingbird, which was the CIA's uh, effort to control the media in the United States, which started in the 50s and went through the, uh, the 60s and um, uh, was exposed by Bernstein around 74. Uh, uh, this guy, Cord Meyer, went to the publisher, uh, McCoy's publisher, who he knew from school. You know, I mean, these, they went fox trotting together and, and uh, hanged out at the same Georgetown social circles. You know, the, I think I explained to you last time that at the highest levels, the CIA and the media are the same people, whether it's the CIA in the publishing industry or the CIA in Hollywood, um, they're the same people. There's no distinction. And so Cord Meyer didn't want the book to be published. And he went to McCoy's publisher and uh, asked him not to do it. And to his credit, the guy said, no, uh, let the book come out. But McCoy was so hounded, and um, a lot of the CIA officers that he interviewed um, changed their stories and said, no, 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 I didn't say that. You know, I would never say that. And uh, 
Um, McCoy ended up having to leave in the United States and went and lived in Australia for 10 years. Thought he'd never get another book published here. You know, I mean, if you if you reveal the CIA's secrets, especially about its its biggest, darkest secret, which is his control of international drug trafficking, you're going to pay a price. And basically, the first price is, is that nobody will ever publish you again in the United States. It's hard. Uh, believe me, you know, the CIA kept a file on me. And they did everything they could to try to prevent my book from coming out. When I started doing my research into the CIA's involvement in drug trafficking, it was in the, basically in the early 1990s. And there were still a lot of DEA officers who were resisting um, the CIA uh, through, through the, the, again, systems analysis theory. The CIA has been able to take over the by placing people who sympathize with it or who are actually CIA officers into the DEA over a period of 25, 30 years, they were actually able to take over the DEA senior management. They were able to take over its intelligence uh, and foreign operations. Uh, they infiltrated the DEA. I talk about that in my books, how they did it, how they did it through you know, manipulating um, Congress and, and having the right political people put in. Uh, there's just a million ways, and they, do, they use them all. But in 1994, just to give you an example, I got an interview uh, with the guy who was the acting administrator of the DEA at that time, a guy named Steve Green. And um, he didn't want to do the interview. But his public affairs chief, a guy named Bill Rusamenti, set up the interview for me. That's kind of funny because um, uh, I took a plane down that morning. I got a train. It was snowing. I had two suitcases with me. I was wearing this big uh, London fog um, raincoat. And I took a train to um, Pentagon City and I walked into the DEA business building carrying two suitcases and wearing a, a, this, this trench coat. Obviously, this was before 9-11, and, and nobody bad an eye, you know what I mean? <laughs> I went to the front desk, and I'm here, here to see Ruse Manny, and they called up, and Ruse Manny came down in that elevator, and I got into the elevator with my bags and my coat, and we went up to the um, executive suite where this guy, Steve Green, um, uh, had his office, and Ruse Manny sat me down, got me a cup of coffee, and he said, um, uh, I'm going to tell you something, and if you ever tell anybody, I'll deny it. He said, but yesterday the CIA called up, and they told us not to go through with this interview with you. They said, the CIA said to us, Valentine's trying to get at us through you. Don't talk to him. Now, in a free society, this sort of thing wouldn't happen. You know, but it's an old boy network, and they were following me around, and they were surveilling me, and they knew all everybody I was going to see, and they were always trying to get people not to talk to me, um, which, of course, is an infringement on my First Amendment rights. But anybody who gets into the investigating the CIA should understand from the beginning, you don't have any right. Uh, you know, and I understood that. And I was just willing to try and finesse my way through it. And Ruzmani said, so, so what do you have to say about that? I said, well, Bill, 
I'm writing a book about the DEA, but if I find out that the CIA was involved in any way or if they were interfering in your operations, I'm going to write about that. And he said, great, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Nowadays, that doesn't work anymore. There is no more. There are no more Bill Rusamentes in the DEA. There are no more um, uh, people who are resisting the CIA and this, this uh, absolutely total corruption of the entire bureaucratic system of the United States. It doesn't exist anymore. I absolutely loathe Donald Trump, but he, he is expressing um, with his recent battle with the CIA, the fact that there is this old boys club that has been completely corrupted within, that is managing the system. And when he says the system's rigged, he's right. It totally is. And the CIA is at the heart of it. And, and they've taken over every institution in the country that in any way has anything to do with foreign operations. Because in, this, in the world that we live in today, there really is no more distinction between domestic and foreign operations. Everything is integrated and in so many ways. And, um, you know, Trump represents in his sort of nativist way an effort to, uh, you know, the, like Brexit, to, to retain some kind of integrity to a state itself and to take back, um, you know, control over your own fate rather than having these internationalists, you know, TPP and all that stuff, uh, selling your jobs away and stuff like that. Now, of course, it's all rhetoric with Trump. You know, I have no idea whether he actually, you know, intends to do it. He thinks he's a billionaire, but it really is true. And, and they have taken over. They've taken over the, in the same way that they've taken over the DEA. They've taken over Homeland Security, as I was explaining to you earlier, with the, like the appointment of these guys like like Lawler, and they've taken over uh, the Homeland Security again because the threat of terrorism—it's not just a domestic thing. It can't be. There's no way to separate it out from what's going on overseas. So the CIA has to be involved because they're the only ones that know what's going on overseas in these. Um, uh, these ways. So everything has become integrated. And the only people that, that can really, that really have all the knowledge about what's going on overseas and are able to control it and have been putting in the systems of control for the last 75 years is the CIA. And that cabal of good old boys that, that have really, really just taken over the security services and they use it like a, like a mafia to fatten themselves and their, and their sponsors. And many of whom, many of whom are in the arms industry, and have nothing to nothing to uh, gain by peace around the world and, and um, uh, having peaceful relations with China or Russia or any other country. They they make their money through conflict, and the CIA is the tool that provokes the conflicts all around the world. And that's why it's clandestine, is because it's serving this function and. Um, uh, the United States at this point in its history has become totally dependent on that system of provoking conflicts and um, uh, having conflict that is totally irrational and unnecessary, other than serving these, these people who control this system. Douglas Valentine, thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome.
I've been speaking with Douglas Valentine. Today's show has been How the CIA Corrupts the System. Douglas Valentine is the author of several works of historical nonfiction, including The Phoenix Program, America's Use of Terror in Vietnam, about the CIA in Vietnam, and The Strength of the Wolf and the Strength of the Pack, which discuss the history of federal drug law enforcement. He also edited a poetry anthology, With Our Eyes Wide Open, Poems of the New American Century. His latest book is The CIA as Organized Crime, How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World, available at ClarityPress.com. Visit his website at DouglasValentine.com. That's DouglasValentine.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsAndButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Release. You dig me?